Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Will Duff Gordon, the CEO and founder of Total Performance Data. Will, thanks very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Will Duff Gordon, the CEO and founder of Total Performance Data. Will, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So Will, those who listened to previous episodes probably heard a reference or two to to what you're doing. And before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about your history and and background in this space and and what led you to do what you're doing today. Yeah, so I've I've always had a massive interest in um, in sport, uh, in, uh, in racing, betting, Owning racehorses, um, I was given a tiny share of a racehorse for my 21st birthday, which introduced me to more student debt uh, than I would have already had. Um, a horse with Kim Bailey back in the late 90s. So, yeah, and then I, my career was really in financial data. And then, yeah, I moved to marry kind of, you know, a data business with a, with, a, with a gambling and gaming business in around 2015. So what was the, what was the main component? you know, through that period of your life that stood out? Was it the racing itself? Was it the betting part? Was it, you know, some of the work you were doing with the financial data? So I kind of I made, made my made my living and then we sold a, a financial data company in 2012 uh, to a firm called Market, which is now listed on uh, NASDAQ and, you know, recently bought IHS. Um, but no, I was an owner. I liked owning. I had a few bets, um, definitely. But uh I uh, was, you know, with, with a bunch of friends, I had probably had five or 10% of a racehorse moving up to 100% from the age of 21 to 40. So just the, you cannot beat the thrill of uh, of seeing your colours on the racetrack, seeing your horse on the gallops, going to the sales, choosing one. I mean, it's the, yeah, it's the biggest uh, legal high out there, I would say to people. Thoroughly addictive, thoroughly expensive. You meet some amazing people um, and... Yeah, it's uh, extremely difficult to do well. But I did I did end up with you know one or two decent horses towards the end. Had lots of bad horses, but it led me to serve on the Racehorse Ownership Association Council in the UK as the youngest member of that so trade association. And you know if you sit around talking about you know the future of the industry and what we need to do to modernise it and make it more appealing to younger fans and bring in more owners and drive more betting, and then you're in your late thirties. You kind of you want to actually go and deliver on some of those ideas as opposed to just sit around talking about them. So I thought, let's uh, let's do this. And then a chap called Eamon Wilmot kind of um, was instrumental in making me go at this full time. So yeah, very exciting place to be. And um, you know, if I if I make squillions out of this, I'll no doubt put it all back into racing through owning horses again. So tell me a little bit about the financial data times and. Is it very different to racing or even betting in terms of the tech, the processes, the data sets, or is it similar in many respects? 
Yeah, I lo- yeah, I'd love to say that you know people in the financial markets you know don't want it to be known as a as the as the wild west or you know like gambling, but you know of course it is. And uh, we were selling essentially. Um, we got all the hedge funds and the asset managers in the world to share their their short positions with us, and we then anonymized that, and then everybody could get a, basically a a window into how much of a stock was being short sold. Um, and that took you know 10, 15 years to kind of build the trust to be sent people's trading files. But in the end, it was a no brainer because you sent in, you know, 150 short positions and you got back, you know, 3000 or 30,000. I think we had $2 trillion worth of short positions uh, in the database. Uh, so um, it's quite similar. And I think it's quite exciting now in sports betting that there's a lot of people coming out of the, the quantitative um, investment management um, industry who kind of were, where you know multi-factor models have been around for a long time, where making money with a quantitative method is is proven, but also difficult. A lot of the arbitrages are gone. You come into sport, there's new data sets appearing, um, you know, here, there, and everywhere. Latency is getting getting uh, you know getting getting quicker, uh, and the competition is much much less. So there's a, there's there's an extremely very very talented kind of computer models who might. Uh, Monday to Friday be employed in Canary Wharf or Wall Street who are also trading, you know, sports in play. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do is bring some of those people into gambling more and more and racing. So what was week one or day one like for total performance data? You mentioned Eamon before. Was it was it very bare bones back in the beginning? Well back then we actually went down the wrong route, as you often do in a young company. We were going after the sort of the training market. Um, back then, Eamon was running a, a very um, sort of technology-focused. He had an Australian trainer called Jeremy Gask, and they were very interested in heart rates, uh, stride data, lactate readings from horses on high-speed treadmills. They did all sorts of amazing things. Um, uh, and we were thinking, you know, it's uh, it's about essentially you know heart rate monitors for horses in training to help with owners' communication and, and train horses better. And then we moved to, I guess, focus more on the actual racing uh, in about 2016 and haven't really looked back. But I think one day we'll go back to to the training side of things. Um, but that's, yeah, that's that's where we began. What was the downside to going in that direction with the training stuff? Was it just there's a small amount of trainers around the world and of those, there's only a small percentage who might be interested in getting access to those type of things? I think I think every every trainer an owner would, would, would like this information, but can every owner and trainer use the information and um, manage the technology? And was our technology sort of cheap enough, robust enough for mass market use? I mean, Apple went and ruined it for everybody by creating $1,000, $2,000 devices in your hand, which never break and uh, cost you, you know, $50 a month. So people kind of would expect that from a you know, a girth with a heart rate monitor in it, et cetera. And so there's a lack of economies of scale as a challenge on technology, servicing it. And, you know, there are a few trainers with, uh, with uh, you know, 100, 200 horses each around the world, but not many. Do they have sports scientists in their team? Do they have a vet that would interpret this data? Yeah, for every Mike DeCock, there's sort of, you know, 3,000 uh, rather different for whom, their daily um, their daily routine is just enough work riders turn up to ride the horses. It's about safety, welfare, people. Unfortunately, you know those of us sitting in uh, in, in towns and cities wondering about how our racehorse, how fit it is, you know, and would love data and a dashboard. 
the poor trainer, he or she, you know, has to just make sure that her staff are there every day. And uh, it's a sort of rather so one day that one day this will this will all come together. But in the short term, at least we can offer trainers and owners a lot of feedback when they do send their horse to the racetrack. So it's more of a B to B business as opposed to a B to C business, frankly. So at that moment, when you realise the direction in the the training space wasn't there. What were your other options at that time? Was it very clear to you that you needed to pivot in one direction or was there options available for you? No, it was pretty clear. You know, you go um, you go to a racetrack and they do, they probably have 80, 80 horses running a day and they might race, you know, um, 100 times a year. That's a lot of data you're gathering. So you get volume straight away. So did we have a lot of options? I can't frankly remember. It was pretty clear that in the UK, certainly, and also in the States, real need to get this data available lots of tracks weren't offering it and um, huge space to dive into so it was a a bit of a no-brainer and we were able to essentially strip back our technology to do less than what it's capable of because you don't need live heart rates you know in racing so we redesigned the system it's a question of um, how do you make a, a tracking system that is sufficiently accurate and low cost that it can roll to every horse in every race and that took us maybe a couple of years to figure out it's an ongoing thing but once you crack that you're in good position what were the biggest challenges throughout that couple of year period where you're trying to figure out the technology side you're probably having many conversations with the tracks and the different bodies that control racing to try and make sure that this was possible and allowed i'm sure there were many things well the uh, the regulators definitely helped there because they made carrying speed sensors as they call it uh, mandatory uh, several years before we started. So, you know, if a horse runs at a racetrack, it has to carry this device. So it's not an optional thing. So that's obviously fantastic. Without that, you know, nothing happens. Um, and then fortunately, by 2015, 2016, race courses had generally become part of big ownership groups. So therefore, you've got a, a single contract with a group that might own 30 or 40 or 50 percent of the racetracks uh, in a given country. So uh, that's that's straightforward. In the UK, you know, you have arena racing and by the Rubens and you have uh, Jockey Club and you have some large independents, but there's only five or six of those, five really. In America, obviously, yeah, you've got Naira, you've got Stronach, you've got um, you've got Churchill Downs Group um, and you've got Hollywood Gaming, but then you've also got Equibase um, who sits in between them all. So we'll come on to that in a minute. But yeah, you, you can negotiate. Our first deal was with, was with ARC in the UK and they are responsible for... Uh, 16 UK racetracks they own, which is which is around 50% of the UK betting turnover at a stroke. So what was the, I guess, the methodology back then? Were you just trying to collect as much data as possible from as many tracks, or were you trying to be selective? Or take us through a little bit about what the aim was. Well, you know, volume is key because that is how, um, uh, I know your audience is, uh, yeah, in the US is, you know, we have a in the in Europe or in the UK, we have a very sort of um, high volume uh, approach. American racing is very high volume, but the but the bookmakers here run the, the AKA the ADWs you call them in America. They want you know as many they want as many betting markets as they can twenty four seven. It's all just another it's just another spin of the dice. It's another market. So that has turned UK racing into pretty high volume propositions. So it's not so much the uh, quality of the individual race is the quantity that, that the bookmakers um, the online bookmakers and the retail value so we were all about um, getting as much kind of going to racetracks with the most 
most volume uh, uh, in one go, which meant not going to a racetrack that races, you know, 15 times a year, but ones that race 80, 90 times a year. How would you approach somewhere like Hong Kong, where they have a very different model? Would it be the same type of thing, and would it would the the data itself have the same type of value? Do you think, even with a small sample? Well, obviously, their betting handle is um, you know belies their relatively small number of tracks. So they have a captive market, two courses, huge volume. So um, um, that would that's different. But we have we have um, we have our business model is really. Um, uh, you know, continues to evolve, but we quite like to be in the in the data business rather than in the service provider business. So we've been very clear with all of our contracts with Racecourse partners that we're creating a kind of a data set which uh, is commercially valuable for them, and which we expect to receive, you know, a you know a royal uh, some kind of rev share from the licensing of that content. So we're creating valuable content um, in in some jurisdictions. If they just want a service um, and the data is uh, is is only going to be used internally or is, is not for betting or, uh, you know, they're not going to enter that kind of partnership with us, then we've got to think again on what our commercials are. But we're a sort of a, a data business, not a service business. And the reason for that is with the way that tracking technologies are evolving the whole time, we need to be constantly investing, you know, everything that we can in the next the next level of accuracy, the next um the next thing to measure, the next biometric measurement, you know, the halving the latency, whatever it might be. And if we're just paid a, a, a service fee for turning up on the racetrack with 40, 60 tags, then I would, I unfortunately, a lot of, you know, businesses in sport and racing who haven't sort of seen the reinvestment and the, uh, uh, and the sort of change because they are stuck in a, you know, in a relatively unattractive, you know, revenue uh, um, uh, format. So we're really a data business first, and, and we happen to make the hardware to collect the data, but we're really most interested in the content that we partner with our racetracks to, to monetize. So let's dig into that a little bit further. I, Coming from Australia and growing up there, I've heard sectional times a lot, and you know, reading some of your information, it's more around the tracking data and the tracking technology. So can you just explain a little bit about how they differ if they do it all? Yeah, so good question. So, you know, when we came along, sectional times, I think in the UK and Australia, and it refers to people who were possibly with stopwatches measuring a number of seconds, the horses are going between um, furlongs typically on the track, creating sectional times. Obviously, constantly tracking a horse every single every single um, stride, you know, several times a second, offers a lot more than just um, knowing how fast, how many seconds a horse has done between furlong eight and furlong seven. In a mile race, but you know, sexual timing is the kind of the basics. Uh, we publish that post race for uh, uh, for free, really, for horsemen to have a look at, so they can see you know how their horse, whether it, you know wasted energy early on, where it hit it top, its top speed, all that good stuff. But of course, once you've got a sensor on a horse, you know there are ways of using that with online bookmakers as a way of enhancing their whole horse racing product, from in play pricing to um, uh, alternative representations of the race through to uh, play cash out products, through to all sorts of different things, all because you've essentially got a sensor on a horse. So if you don't mind, can you share some of the discussions you would have with a racetrack or a different body involved in racing when it comes to, I guess, the intention and the aim? It sounds like you have you know one eye on the future of the industry and sustainability and making sure it's viable longer term. And, and also, I'm sure you have discussions around using the data sets that you've collected through the 
the hardware for betting purposes, for entertainment purposes, and then visualizations, I would imagine. And also, you talked a little bit about when the the racetrack might want it for internal use or the body, then you'd, you'd have to think it through. Tell us a little bit about how those discussions go. Yeah, so at a, at a basic level, you know, every sport, you know, has to compete now uh, for um, attention, for entertainment, and they need pictures and they need data. Um, and they, that drives fan engagement and betting, if it's a betting-related sport like racing or, 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 you know, other sports, you still need to have data to have good and deep fan engagement like you have around F1 or cycling and you have, you know, the position of the peloton and you have all that, all those graphics. So, um it's it, it's all about working with the race courses who have really done a fantastic job of the last you know 10 20 years of monetizing their pictures tv pictures and all of their sort of uh experiences of selling pictures first of all into betting shops to, to broadcasters and then in the last 10 years into online so we're sort of i guess adding the data piece which is then okay so you've got pictures and data how does how does that essentially create more betting turnover or more engagement or more interest in that sport and it really depends whether you're you know like whether you're an owner a trainer a jockey a horseman a regulator a handicapper um, a punter professional gambler you know bookmaker you've everybody has got like their little piece of this data set that they can use um and uh, it's, it's you know it's tremendously exciting and i think that racing has a great chance to kind of get back to being a number one um betting sport uh because you know we can put horses on sensors on horses we can put more than one they can't say no and that data can be live um for everybody who wants it it strikes me that there's probably a value chain you mentioned a lot of different segments of the industry i would imagine certainly some of those segments would be willing to pay more in terms of just a commercialization approach there's some that are more high value than others, although for it to proliferate more widely and be useful across the industry and, and some of the sustainability aspects, you would probably prefer that it is more widely distributed, I would imagine? Yes, exactly. The most, yeah, of course, the, li- the live raw data is obviously the most valuable piece of it. The, the creating in running odds from this data, which we can now do, is, uh, is, you know, is, is especially premium content. Um, and yeah, there are, you know, and then post-race data, summarized data, you know, delivered potentially the next day, you know, uh, is, is of a lower value. Tell me about the evolution from the beginning to now in terms of what you're collecting, um, what's become more of a focus for you. I'm guessing it started out with some, um, you know, different data sets that were around timing and, and stuff like that. And now it sounds like you can do everything up to in play odds feeds tell us about the evolution in that space for your business um so yeah the the in play odds feed we we first of all thought that uh uh, perhaps um, bookmakers would would calculate their own in play odds from uh, the uh the gps uh, data so in the gps feed obviously at the rawest level you've got velocity and you've got uh, uh latitude and longitude per horse uh many times a second how many meters to go for every runner and from that you know you could a bookmaker could take their SP and turn that into a, a price. However, of course, with bookmakers, with lots of consolidation, huge players, they've got quite congested product roadmaps. They're quite happy to take a kind of pure 100% in running price from, from, from our model. And then they're going to add their over round, their margin to that. Um, they'll deal with the, with the 
you know, any bet delays and they'll do the kind of the customer facing bit, but they have a price from us. And what, so we're working with, um, well, well, our method, shall we say, is to work with some guys who have been working in uh, trading other sports in play. And for flat racing, it's, we've got an exciting kind of um, Monte Carlo model, uh, which uses uh, neural networks to sort of train itself on how, for, how fast horses take to, um, you know, to go between the different furlongs of different tracks. Um, we're trading it live into Betfair to sort of prove the efficacy of the in-play prices. And essentially, we do 10,000 calculations per horse per second in 0.2 of a second to come up with the probability of that horse winning. Uh, and that's pretty exciting stuff, actually. So as long as the underlying tracking data is good, um, the probability is is pretty hard to beat uh, at any given at any given moment. Um, and that is the sort of yeah, that's the real product uh, for the future, shall we say? Is you know uh, the ability to bet on a horse race from the moment the declarations are confirmed, you know, through to you know a yard before the finish line. In theory, can any punter do the same thing if they had the tools and the ability to do it? Yeah, so um, any punter can take the. Uh, we got a, we've got six or seven different data feeds of different to suit different different uh, tastes, different levels of detail, and yeah, people are subscribing to that content to, you know, to whether they're pre-race or in-race uh, better to, uh, to to form their own judgment as to uh, who's going to win the race. And uh, you know, people who've got multi-factor models already with lots and lots of form data uh, in there already. This is in addition to it. People who are betting in play, this is a great data set that helps sort of, I guess, take away the advantage from some of the people who are betting in play at the racetrack, who are just taking advantage of people who are betting off track, off TV pictures that are rather delayed. Although the TV pictures are, are catching up hugely now, but um, you know, anybody anywhere with a model can receive our live UDP data. It goes from the horse to them in about you know 40 or 50 milliseconds from the sensor to the customer. And there's no delay. So you've kind of got the ability to do sort of high frequency trading from from anywhere in the world, which should, you know, see a real pickup in uh, in liquidity on some of the in-play uh, betting exchanges on, on racing that can provide this data. Has there been many other use cases for the punters other than the in-play component? Is there, you know, value in getting the data sets from a post-race perspective and in terms of reviewing what happened and trying to use that moving forward? Yeah, well, particularly now that we have... Um, uh, well, we've got the stride. We'll come on to the stride and the stride length and cadence data. But yeah, um, some of our earliest customers, you know, have there has been no uh, in the UK at least. There's been no, um, you know, race by race transparency as to how many, how fast or how slow the horses are all going. So it's obvious to add that if you are a pre-race, if you're a pre-race better. So we work with most of the, you know, the major pre-race betting um, folks out there who. This is a fundamental, um, you know, ingredient in their model, um, and that's uh, that's fantastic. The distance the horses have run, um, and all the sectional information that you can glean from that. And I know you've had Simon Simon Rowlands on here talking about that. He certainly, you know, would be would be a great person to go and read some of his work on at the races. It's all displayed very well on at the races.com post race to have a look at. Um, and then in terms of the of the of the stride stuff, so that's an exciting. A bit for us so because we have an accelerometer as well as a gps in the sensor we know how many sort of strides a horse is doing uh, every second um, and that is quite informative uh, in sort of two ways and this is all very sort of new 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 a new area of sort of uh, understanding but 
the length of a horse's stride is really talks to its quality, its ability per se. The max length, so you know, a Frankel can do could do over eight eight meters per stride. Um, Secretariat, you know, also up there. Uh, and so you look at the, the the max, and then you look at the kind of the peak average. And that tells you about sort of ability and then cadence. So strides per second is really is really cool, uh, which really tells you the kind of the, the right trip for that horse, shall we say. So kind of through this through this data on a sort of pre-race basis, you can kind of like, number one, infer some kind of like power rating. Well, we're certainly working on that internally to see what it looks like. So how much power or energy is a horse capable of throwing down? Number two, and that's using all the sectional time data, um, wind resistance, where they are in the in the pack, all that good stuff, distance they've run every furlong, etc. Number two, uh, how good are they potentially by looking at the stride length max? And then number three, is this the right trip? So, you know, this is all going to be hopefully stuff that people will uh, pick over, disagree over, have different methods on, and come up with different models and create more bedding. So will it be widely accessible for anyone interested in the industry who wants to play around with it, or is it uh, ring fenced to an extent? No. So, so we have a sort of we have um, the most all the data is freely available post race uh, at the moment at theraces.com and possibly some other places soon, um, which is actually quite a lot of detail for if someone wants to have a look at a, the result of a race. Um, so split times per runner top speed, stride data is all there. So that's all kind of free to air. And then if you want, um, you know, the data feeds directly, we have a variety of data feeds that we commercialize and uh, and sell to people on a subscription basis. And we can work, you know, whether you're a in-play professional syndicate or a, a one-man band, you know, we, we have sort of uh, flavors to suit. So we kind of hopefully, it's pretty democratic. We've got, you know, free options and then we've got kind of, you know, licensable options and it sort of, it, it all depends who you are. So do you think that stride and cadence data will become common parlance in the next sort of decade? Or are there other things that are emerging in this space that might overlap or overtake what's already happening? Yeah, I think, I think, I think they will be. I think, um, I think certainly if I just give a slight um, uh, 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 speech on behalf of the, of the owners and trainers out there, you know, there's a, there's a problem in retaining owners um, in, in many jurisdictions and a lot of it is because, you know, it's very expensive to buy a horse. It's very expensive to train a horse. And, you know, there's injury risk. If we could have horses kind of, you buy the right horse uh, for the for the kind of the kind of horse that you want through essentially, you know, really good genetic testing, cardio testing, maybe breeze up sales where you can measure, you know, their their speed, their cadence. You kind of, hopefully your, your 100 grand budget, if you're lucky enough to have that, gets you a hundred grand horse. Whereas today it's probably, you've got a 10% chance of your hundred grand horse being a hundred grand horse, 90% chance is a 10 grand horse. I don't know. I'm guessing those figures, but it's not great. Then of course, when it's in, when it's racing, what's the opportunity cost of running over the wrong distance, you know, with the wrong running tactics three times, that's a whole season gone. So I don't know. It'd be great to have more competitive racing, every horse being kind of what the owners want they'll stay in the business longer and you know we, we'd all like to see 10 horses in a race and um a more equal chance and not the kind of you know the global domination by a couple of superpowers which is kind of the direction it's going in at the moment so i hope so um in terms of other biometric data of course heart rates 
live heart rates would be fantastic. You know, the, we can do that. And that will be, I couldn't tell you whether it's going to be two years or five years, but um, I think in a race probably close to your heart, like the Melbourne Cup, I can see that being nearer two years than five years because of there's obviously a welfare angle there as well, isn't there? Is is uh, we want to make sure that horses are all running safely and, you know, vets could tell you quite a lot about what the max heart rate should be for a horse running over a very long trip. So I think live heart rates is, is, is next. Um, goodness knows who else. We've got plenty on our plate right now, but, but, but those are the things we're working on, really getting stride length and cadence out there and just getting on to more racetracks. Are there, <clears throat> excuse me, are there major gaps in the industry at the moment with respect to different data that is collected or can be collected or is not being collected? You talked about heart rate. I know, for example, weighing a horse is something that's common in certain places and not in others. That's a little bit more simplistic of a measurement. But are there things that you would like to see in five years from today that aren't really being talked about? Yeah, you're right. They're, they're, yeah, um, the weight of a horse, has it had a wind operation? These They're so controversial here. I think they're now declaring wind operations. Um, uh, weight is not available here, uh, but should be. All all this data is uh, is all additive. I you know I don't understand people who who say no to any of that because the you know let the client be the interpreter of it. Um, and if they don't find it useful, don't use it. But I think the Hong, Hong Kong you know are very very smart on this. They put out as much information as they possibly can. I think in America, they publish their workout data. So, um, you know, we're doing a lot in America, but one of the earliest things that we were asked to do in America was to uh, was to automate what the clockers are doing. Uh, clockers do a very fine job and there'll still be a need for some clockers. But if we can have kind of like stride by stride information on a workout, is that not going to give a, you know the punter more faith in, in, in their betting selections for that afternoon? Of course it would, especially if you've got stride data in there uh, and stuff. So kind of transparency is key isn't it for trustworthy markets the more information the more the more liquidity there'll be so i want you to put your racing fan hat on for a moment and we can talk generally about the industry a little bit here in terms of sustainability for the industry a lot of what you've talked about generally leads to that direction and down that path with trying to get as much data as possible accurate quick data get it out into the industry provide it to the different segments of the market what other areas from a fan perspective are making you feel excited about the industry moving forward or on the flip side there's always plenty of negatives out there people are more than willing to uh discuss in detail you know in 140 characters a lot of the negative points but from your perspective you've had a lot of conversations with a lot of probably interesting people in the industry what are some of the themes that stand out to you so yeah in america yeah we're live on um seven racetracks and we've got quite a big order for for next year we're working with with equibase uh, and the u.s jockey club on that and we work with all you know, most of the major racecourse groups there. It's really exciting with with with, with passport and sports betting, and you know, there's 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 two narratives, isn't there? Is like is is the unleashing of sports betting uh, uh, your friend or your foe? And um, you know, the lesson from uh, from Europe and the UK is you know, racing is the kind of you know, some say it's the uh, it's the beer in the pub, you know, brings the people in, or it's the milk in the supermarket, and then they kind of go and look at other products, they'll go and bet on other sports, but you know, it's all very well having a really exciting NFL game on a Thursday night or a Monday night, but what's happening in the in the ad break? So guess what? There's six races, you know, from these different racetracks. So racing's volume is is, is a good thing from the point of view of uh, betting turnover and the online sports betting landscape. And I'm sort of excited that that 
as I said earlier, horse, we can represent a horse race because we can put sensors on the horses. We could have, um, we could offer customers tailor-made views of that race. They could have a, we've done some um, virtual reality or augmented reality uh, uh, jockey cam kind of views. So you could render a race. We rendered a race at Golden Gate. You, you, you had a bet on number two. You're sitting on number two. You could be wearing a uh, an Oculus Rift headset. You don't even need to do that. You just have a 360 degree view. You might have a fighter pilot heads up display with miles per hour, your live stride data. So you can kind of say, hey, I'm a I'm a 19 year old and I play, you know, a lot of kind of computer games and I and I like esports and I go I'm on Twitch most of the time. They're not going to want to watch an old fashioned horse race and worry about picking the form and stuff. So we can render the horse racing product in very, very modern and um, exciting ways so there's the gamification aspect which sensors on horses definitely help um and you know i think we need to say that horse racing can definitely compete in the uk yet it might have been 70 80 percent of turnover it's maybe more like 35 40 percent of turnover now but turnover is rising across the board so yeah you've got a smaller stake but the pie keeps growing so it's kind of, it's like adapt or die type situation. I think, you know, Americans, a lot of American racing, it's, it's great that there is, you know, so many racetracks, you know, still going. A lot of amazing horsemen who work really hard to, you know, get the horses performing there. And it's the job of, you know, the technology providers like us and the racetracks to kind of put that content in a package where it can sit really nicely inside I don't know, MGM Sport or Fox Bet, or, or there's going to be some hugely interesting and innovative companies coming in. And they're going to be saying to racing, you know, you know, this is, this is what I'm getting from the N, you know, NFL. This is what I'm getting from the NBA. This is what I'm getting from eSports cycling. You know, racing, what are you giving me? Um, it doesn't, it should, it mustn't be black and white and it mustn't be a real headache to try and pick a winner. In terms of adapt or die and that approach or mentality, do you think the different bodies are amenable to that? Because I get the sense certainly as soon as these you know public corporations that are offering betting, uh, once they realize or if that comes to pass that these other sports are more interesting and you know esports becomes a demographic they're interested in and they're getting certain clientele that they're going to make business decisions and potentially leave behind. Uh, different sports or something like racing in some respects if there isn't that adapt mentality everybody you know everyone is trying to adapt for sure um and uh you know all these businesses are you know have adapted well there's there's a big growth in historic racing um you know actual terminals aren't there at racetracks so you know everyone's everyone's got a strategy everyone is is innovating um and yes in sport i have found that there's an element of, um, you know, control is key. Um, people would rather sometimes control something that, that grew um, more slowly than not have full control over something which grows faster. And that's, that's questionable strategy. Uh, but everyone's trying and there's some, there's some very powerful organizations out there. And I think, uh, you know, I'm going to be doing my best to make sure that I help racetracks around the world meet the challenge. One follow-up on that with respect to a lot of race clubs and, and racing bodies seem to be interested in diversifying their, I guess, income streams. And you've seen a lot more, I guess, approach for racetracks is to have a lot more people going in a party-type atmosphere. We've certainly seen it in Australia with the big carnivals 
uh, certainly in the U.S., with uh, hundreds of thousands of people going to the Triple Crown events and probably don't know that there are horses running. As an industry participant who has a business and as a racing fan and as an owner of horses, how does that approach generally um, sit with you? Yes, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it's one that uh, the, you know, the jockey club here talk about a fair amount. I think um, racing has become a really, really comfortable and good way of having a good day out, having a few drinks. It's become an entertainment business. And I think it's done a fantastic job in this country the last 20 years to go from being a stadium which was pretty uncomfortable, um, men only, uh, you had to have an interest or a knowledge of the, of, the, of the horses or the sport to actually enjoy it. The food was bad, it was cold, you know, it was muddy field, you part, pretty much terrible experience. But, but yeah, we look back lovingly in some ways at those, <laughs> in some ways, the characters who went to those places. Nowadays, you go to Ascot, you could probably, what's your favorite type of coffee? Lavazza, Illy, Starbucks, you name it. There's probably one of each, probably one of each on every floor of the, of the racetrack. Who's your favorite band? Right. Well, they're probably playing afterwards. Um, so you've got six or seven or eight amazing races. Then you've got a great party. We've got one of the best DJs around the world afterwards. So we're kind of deeply comfortable carpets everywhere. Very good lose. So yeah, I think America has got a, a little bit of work to do on that front still has some amazing festivals for sure the question then is how do you engage those people that come with the content that's taking place there during the afternoon things have been as bad as essentially you train or own the horse in the sixth race and you can't park your car or you can't even get into the track because you know you're being pushed out of the way by 10,000 race goers who are there to see you know simply red or whoever it might be that is bad things aren't that bad now so you know, we've got to engage, try, try to engage uh, the people who are coming for the concert with the sport in the afternoon. And that means, you know, presenting in a way that they're going to relate to. We cannot be talking about, you know, going descriptions and, and, and stallions no one's ever heard of. And, you know, we mustn't just be talking the, the, the jargon of the sport. We've got to talk about it so that everybody gets, gets value out of the day out. You know, the tote is going to be reimagined in this country to hopefully help that. So, it's it's a key it's a key battle line as you quite rightly point out. I don't think you're going to win everybody. I think that's unrealistic. But if you know you could convert ten twenty percent of the concert goers into somebody who might go racing, you know, twice a year, then that's going to be hugely significant. So one final question for you, Will. More generally, or you can you can put your uh, your CEO hat back on if you like, but. Just in terms of the next 12 to 18 months in, in your world, in your space, what are some of the things that are going to be continually popping up, some new questions or new topics or areas that you think will be pertinent moving forward? Uh, well, I think on the, on, the, on the product side, I think um, yeah, the racing product is going to um, be uh, reimagined over the next 12 to 18 months. And I think you'll be able to uh, bet um, pre-race and throughout the race up until the finish line with every, um, whether you're in a tote pool or a fixed odds bookmaker, cashing out in play is going to be a fun product uh, that you can get. There may be some derivative markets, uh, such as, you know, your horse crossed the line the fastest, but uh, didn't win the race, get your money back. So I'm excited that, you know, we can, I think we can really fast forward some innovation in, uh, in racing as well overdue. On the slightly more, um, uh, you know, not, not so positive side, I think, Everybody needs to work together to realize that, you know, the margin of this 
this product for the people who fund it, i.e. the sort of bookmaking side, is a challenge. And I, I think racing is a is a is barely a seven percent margin online, and that you get that from a kind of slot machine game. So you throw in lots of politics and um, and uh, you know government taxes and 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 you name it, and it becomes you know quite hard work. So so there's going to be margin pressure, I think, in uh, in racing is bad now and i think that's something that everyone needs to sort of work together on to to improve the margin and racing and betting i'd love to see um you know working really closely together after that i wanted to mention earlier i didn't ask you the question but has there been any innovation within the ownership ranks and can a 27 year old you know just out of university first sort of entry-level job type person who's interested in racing is there a way for them to be involved these days it sounds like they're you know in the past anyway it was a uh, an investment in quotation marks or, a, or an expense to be involved but has that adapted at all do you have a leg in a racehorse back home i don't i don't i would love to i would have loved to you know five or six years ago in my you know mid to late 20s and uh, you know spend that that money or that time being invested in something like that it was just a bit of a tricky experience yeah so i mean australia leads the way on like mass ownership um, the reason I asked the question was great. You know, everybody, it's probably a bit like Ireland was in the 1970s or 60s. Everybody knows somebody who owns, you know, a hoof, a racehorse, any amount. My big point is whether you own 1% or 100%, you get the same adrenaline rush. So, like, mass ownership is great in Australia. Syndication is fantastic. There's lots of innovation everywhere on promoting syndicates. Big drive here. There's a cool company out there called The Racing Manager, which essentially just, like, takes all of the... Uh, owner's communication out of the trainer's hands and puts it on WhatsApp and delivers all of the kind of time for me data, you know, directly to a good website. So there's, there's lots of investment going into sort of syndication. I mean, I think one day, one of our early business plans was um, train your own racehorse. So imagine you've got all the data on, you know, your horse was wearing a, a stat. I think you could select a horse um, and, uh, and, and, and set the training program for it. That would be deep engagement, shall we say. So that's maybe my, my, 10 year 10 year plot uh, play um but um there's stuff happening for sure but it unquestionably though it's extremely hard to buy a decent racehorse and therein lies the kind of the entry level problem which is uh which is you know kind of trying to make sure that when someone buys a racehorse for the first time or has a share in it they got a good experience and, and they give it an, and they stay in for five or ten years yeah i think that's the challenge i've seen here in the u.s with I think it's called the fans football league or the whatever it's called where the, the fans own the team basically and the fans call the plays where they you know the consensus of what the next play should be is what the uh the quarterback does and so on and so forth so i think in racing it would be cool to have that innovation in the ownership ranks and even if it's you know you saw a horse you like first up and you want to buy shares in that horse for the rest of its preparation and it might be you know 500 or a thousand bucks and you get you know the next four races and maybe you don't get your thousand bucks back, but you get to own a horse for the next, you know, three or four uh, starts it has, and maybe you can go to the track and you know you get an ownership badge or pass for the day or whatever it might be. There's things like that I think that would be interesting to the younger demographics, where you know disposable income may not be at the levels required to be able to own five percent of a horse and pay you know thirty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars for the you know the five or six year experience of owning that horse. It's all out there. It's crowdfunding, you know. Um, I mean, I backed a company called Racehorse Trader, where you can buy shares in racehorses online. They've now brought in an auction facility. 
um, to democratise the ownership of horses would, would be uh, would be would be fantastic. That is what it's all about. You know, that is the excitement of television. Is you know a bunch of people who've just got lucky owning a good horse from this town against a bunch of people from another town. It's not necessarily uh, dare I say it. You know the you know the the big powerful dynasties racing against each other for uh, for you know twenty million dollars in the desert. Um, so you know it's it's interesting. And the fact that you said that there are fan suggested plays already taking place in some sports i mean that's that there you go the precedent's already there for train your own racehorse yeah and i think it's it works on many levels with engagement in racing engagement in betting uh, you know whether it's on an exchange or whether it's with bookmakers it's marketing you know a lot of aussies play football in the winter and then you know if that football club was able to spend five thousand dollars on owning a horse for the, the length of the season for example while people are there uh, watching games and things like that that's when it becomes an interesting experience for people and getting more people involved not as a party and going to see a band and going to drink you know pims on a saturday but more actively involved in the sport of racing and that that's some of the things in terms of innovation it'd be cool to see moving forward sport, sport is tribal right and uh you know we just had the ashes congratulations on that one by the way i say through British thank team. you um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like Australia versus, they've got to get global, you know, global interest, you know, regional rounds and rounds and rounds of racing of the same horses racing against each other, you know, like every three weeks, not that interesting. So, you know, the Melbourne Cup Carnival, fantastic. The Arc de Triomphe meeting, fantastic. Breeders' Cup, fantastic. You know, the made at, you know, the World Cup in Dubai. These, you know, we've got to, we've got to somehow get the champions like, Winks not racing outside of Australia, crying shame. You know, it's about the stories and the tribalism. Australia versus Europe, of course. You know, the Ryder Cup. What's the most exciting thing in golf? The Ryder Cup. Um, the Ashes in cricket. So yeah, to- totally agree. And the world's got a smaller place. You can fly horses um, around these days, and there are lots of people at racetracks who are working hard on um, attracting kind of runners from around the world to come and um, you know race on a, on a bigger stage, and that's. Yeah, hugely exciting. And the real punters will be screaming and saying, if you bet on that horse, you own that horse for that race, and uh, that's the best way to get involved in ownership. But I think we could do a whole hour and a half on just this topic, but it's certainly an interesting one moving forward. Yeah, as yeah, just to, yeah, a final note would be to say, as you can kind of tell, my kind of uh, I have my selfish interest to make TPD you know commercially successful for my for my loyal and uh, great shareholders, but. You know, I came into this with a passion for racing and for sport and for excitement. And I really think that uh, through some product innovation, we can, you know, provide some positive news and some wins you know, for, for, for this industry. I've certainly got a, a bigger, um, a bigger mission here than just uh, uh, than just, uh, you know, the grind of uh, signing up more racetracks and uh, commercializing this content. I definitely think it's going to be uh, going to be good for the game. Well, before I let you go, where can people find you, or, or should they go to the website? Is Twitter a good spot? What's What's the easiest? Yeah, so there's, you can follow at TPD Zone on Twitter. Uh, I'm also personally on Twitter under my name. Um, website, uh, no problem. Will at TotalPerformanceData.com is my email address, and uh, look forward to hearing from any of your your, uh, your listeners. I should say, I only said viewers, listeners. Come on. Sounds great. I, I hope all the student debt uh, increases from ownership of horses has been erased and uh, things are going well on that front. I appreciate your time. It was fun to talk about some new topics in the, the racing world. Perfect. Thanks, Jake.